Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Corey Allen from Austin, Texas, a musician behind many wonderful albums, host of the Astral Hustle podcast, author of Now is the Way, an unconventional approach to modern mindfulness, audio engineer, prolific creator of binaural beats for meditation, deep work, and many other things besides. I'm probably forgetting a couple of strings to Corey's bulging bow right there. He does so much. But one thing that seems to unify a lot of what Corey does seems to be this idea of pulling up the perimeter, the ephemeral edge of human experience and lassoing it, dragging it down and making it as accessible and graspable as the microphone is right in front of me right now. Certainly something that he does on his music, on albums like The Source, where you've got this sense of energy circulating the space and it's being rendered in such bright colours through gongs and bells and strings. Uh, It's also present on his book, Now is the Way, which came out just recently and I had a great time reading via audiobook, where something that can often seem a little bit inaccessible, like mindfulness, is made to seem as common sense in the terms of self-care as just eating your vegetables. Corey's got just such a great way with words which comes through in this podcast as well, where suddenly everything feels so much more simple and something that you can actually take a hold of. I had a great time chatting with Corey. Obviously, the situation politically in the UK has left me feeling rather despondent, but it's conversations like these that perk me up and remind me that around the world there are people who are going to continue to persist to do great things and that these conversations are still possible regardless of the turmoil that's taking place on a macro level. You can find out more about Corey over at his website, corey-allen.com, and you can find out more about Corey's picks over at attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening. This is probably the last podcast of 2019. Thank you very much for joining me. The sporadic schedule will continue into 2020. I'm just in the process of booking guests for the first part of the year. Hope you join me then. Otherwise, have a lovely festive break and a good wind down to the year. This is Corey Allen on Crucial Listening. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. So you have brought three important records to the table, as all my guests do. Um, Before we get to your three important records, I want to ask about your book that came out recently, Now is the Way, An Unconventional Approach to Modern Mindfulness, which came in very handy for me just very recently. I listened to it within about two to three weeks of the birth of my son, so I did the audio book. Um, Mm 
which was a great time to be getting a dose of uh, <laughs> mental balance. I mean, there were moments at three in the morning where I was definitely harnessing everything I could remember from the pages just to make sure that I could not crumble into futility in front of my wife and child. So thank you to begin with for uh, giving me some sense <laughs> of centering in amongst all of that. Um, I really loved the book, uh, and also I thought it was a wonderful read. I mean, what I wanted to ask first, actually, was how was doing the audiobook? Um, it's such a strange thing, I think, when you take a text that you write silently and is often read silently to then announce it out loud. Often it seems to give a fresh perspective to the text. How did you find putting the audiobook together? Yeah, well, first off, thank you. Uh, and I'm very glad that it served you well in those moments where I actually needed to do so. Um, yeah, so I a part of my writing process that I developed was reading what I'd written out loud. So after I would write a you know a quite a large portion of the of the book, I would read it out loud just to myself. And then after I was done with the entire thing, I read the whole thing from start to finish out loud just to myself, uh, as because it's important to me to have everything as clear as possible, and also for all of the writing to feel as as conversational as possible and you can really it's an interesting kind of litmus test of like you can find these little things that it reads right like it kind of mathematically when you read something you're like okay that's cool but when you say it out loud it's like that does not sound natural and so <laughs> yeah, totally. um for me like a way to really harness you know my personality and, and the way that i you know talk about things i read it out loud so i had done that before and also given that uh, you know a big part of my profession is speaking anyway uh recording the actual audiobook was really fun and easy breezy uh, one funny aspect of it is you know generally of course a, a publisher will book a studio and there's a producer and a director and an editor and all the, the that thing that's involved with it so you just show up and you read and and that uh one interesting thing is since I have my own studio, I told them as a clock, I would be very happy to, and I would prefer to just record it in my studio. And honestly, it will sound better, most likely, than wherever I go in town. For sure. Because I just run my, that's one little secret to my, like, the intros to my podcasts. Like, I've had so many feedback. I've even had, like, uh, uh, like podcast networks reach out to me and be like, dude, how does do, do the intro, like just you talking at the beginning, it sounds so good. <laughs> well, a little secret there is because like <laughs> I'm running my voice through my mastering chain. So I have like uh, Crane Song, uh, Manly, you know, all, all this external analog gear that my voice is going through. Um, and so, and then I know how to produce it. And so uh, that's why that sounds good. But um I uh, recorded the audiobook here, you know, in my studio, and that was quite lovely. One issue and one kind of funny aspect of it is that, uh, you know, so I'm in Austin, Texas, and it gets quite warm during the summertime here. Uh, you know, it's generally about one, you know, we're, we're uh, you know, on that old Fahrenheit type of situation over here, but it's, you know, it was over 100 degrees every day it's probably i think 105 for like a few weeks in a row here this summer it was just insanely hot <laughs> right we, we normally get like the the weather generally looks kind of like i joke about it looking like binary code it's all ones and zeros like it's 101 <laughs> 100 101 100, uh, but yeah 105 is real hot so 
clearly whenever you're recording you know you don't want there to be any um you know sound in the background and so i didn't have the air conditioning or any fan or anything like that going Whoa. and so yes exactly so you and then i've got the gear on so i've got tubes that are hot you know i got hot tubes uh oh, for, for the gear cooking in the studio which given that that's lovely now that it's winter here i turn on the tubes it kind of warms the studio up a little bit but <laughs> uh yes recording this and you know these are like four hour sessions uh so it's a long time to not have any air conditioning or anything and so i was sweating like profusely during some of those those takes where it was really hot while i was recording um and i kind of had to do it because there's deadlines you know so i had to get it done by a certain time and uh definitely there was long stretches where i was like this is so this is like almost hilarious that I'm like recording this thing and I'm having to use like a lot of my mental processing power and <laughs> all of the attention and focus I've cultivated <laughs> to be able to just stay locked into this and allow the heat and discomfort to be just a part of this process and kind of embody and embrace it and just plow ahead and um, I did after a while end up going I grabbed like a cold pack and put that on my neck while I was recording so a little funny under the hood aspect of that uh, other than the heat I had a lot of fun recording it wicked yeah you don't sound like you're slurring through a heat stroke or anything when I was listening so job done that's good that's thank you because normally <laughs> I that's one of the things I'm I am not self-conscious but I'm self-aware of the fact that I don't enunciate very well I don't feel I feel like I kind of slur sometimes in general anyway uh uh, and so that's nice to hear that it didn't sound slurry on there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was great actually to listen to the audiobook because I think it was delivered through your voice. And what I was mm -hmm. surprised about with Now is the Way, it was surprised is, I mean, compared to a lot of mindfulness literature that I've read, there was a lot of you in the book and in the text mm. itself as well, like a lot of your experiences. And that to me felt like, a break with mindfulness as I know it and yeah I mean did you know that you were going to be bringing so much of yourself to the text and to this book was it important yeah. for you to do so as well yeah absolutely I have this thing you know from my podcast the Astro Hustle you know I've got this um this this kind of point of view where I don't ever, because I know that there's a reason why it has a ridiculous name, the Astral Hustle. It's meant to be like a quadruple entendre, you know? <laughs> I like stuff that's layered and, and weird and makes you think in a lot of different ways at once. And um, I knew that if I gave it a ridiculous name, since I have a natural proclivity towards like going down deep rabbit holes and talking about really like, you know, heavy things or big, you know, philosophical or existential ideas is, or is what I enjoy. I thought if I gave it a funny name or a weird name that people might not take me seriously, it's kind of inoculates you from people getting the idea or falling under the impression that you somehow think that you have this wisdom or you're, sure. you're somehow special, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, so that's important to me. I, I kind of have grown to talk about it as like, uh, democratized knowledge in some ways like everyone that's listening to the show is just as you know uh 
in, in a lot of cases, they're they're way smarter about way more things than I could ever imagine, right? So I want to be like, hey, let's talk about it like this. Like these are my ex- these are my experiences, and these are problems that I things, and here's how I worked through them. Mm-hmm. And it's just me. This is how I did it. I'm not saying this is the way. I'm not saying that you know I'm better than anyone else because I've have been able to invoke some transformation in my life and so uh as i started talking about my you know experiences uh i had like people you know listeners of the show would email me over the years and say hey i experienced that too and i experienced so and so forth and so forth and that was very useful because it made me realize that one i wasn't like the only person that experienced these things these are human problems and then two, it showed me that uh, by sharing how I worked through these things and figured them out on my own throughout my life, uh, it really enabled people to, you know, it's kind of sharing my map. It enabled people to cut down the time it took them to, you know, work through whatever it is or figure out whatever it is that they're trying to figure out. And so um, that is a really useful way of talking about things that can easily be turned into some self-serving sort of egocentric type of thing where you know there's so many people out there that talk about because mindfulness has to do with our inner lives it's intangible it's it's becomes fluid and mm-hmm. transient you know um and so it's very easy for people to talk about things like that in a in a kind of a condescending way or a a lofty like holier than thou way or, or like oh i have f- the secret figured out i'll be the first person to say like i'm an idiot you know i, <laughs> I, I just do my best you know, i'm a weird little critter that's you know i don't know i'm just uh shuffling around on a planet in the middle of infinity um <laughs> And so, yes, it's important to me to kind of have all of that uh, laid out there. And so I think that uh, another aspect of it is that really showing like an example of a real life experience that I had, I think, opens a connection to someone that's reading that allows themselves to put their own kind of put, put themselves in my shoes in some way to go, okay, like here's the entry point of a common human experience and they can sort of follow along and then see how they got out on the other side of it and they can kind of walk themselves through that and it helps i think people integrate uh, it kind of creates like a vehicle for them to integrate the idea into their own lives through a story of my own that i shared uh and so i you know that that's basically why it's like that and i knew that it would be like that uh from the beginning because it's i think it's an important way or uh a um, useful way to talk about those type of things yeah i agree i think there's definitely the sense with some of these things where the vision is presented so immaculately that any initial attempt to try and employ mindfulness which obviously is fraught with you know worries about whether or not you're doing it right is stamped with failure if you're coming Mm -hmm. from a place where all you've got is this you know beautifully presented vision of what mindfulness should look like definitely i felt reading your book uh the presence of the self or the parts of me that i wanted to shake off within my experiences of doing mindfulness felt okay because i know Mm -hmm. that you know you were talking about going through an experience where it was very much a gradual process to shake off those aspects of behavior and your perspective that perhaps you didn't feel serve you so certainly i found it useful Oh, that's that's beautiful, man. And you know, that's that's one of the the 
weird symptoms of our culture of compression, of time compression, of, you know, uh, the amount of accessibility of everything that's around us and how there's like social pressure revolving around digital communication. You know, this thing of like, if you send an email, you know, right now and then someone doesn't respond within a day or something, then it's like, ooh, maybe they don't like me. Or, <laughs> yeah. or if you receive an email, you're like, even though I'm super busy, I better try and get to this within like a day or two because I don't want someone to think I'm ignoring them. You know, there's just so much weird stuff like that. Um, or I've had people, you know, I get like a, a uh, just uh, a lot of social media direct messages from people just kind of saying hi or asking me things or whatever. And, um, I've had some where people will like kind of play out this script of like hitting me up and then an hour later, like, hey, you know, I know, like, I just wanted to check back on this. It's like, dude, it's only been an hour. <laughs> like, uh, you know, what if I was on a flight or something? Right, yeah. um, and so, uh, yeah, it's we, we're in this, we've kind of slowly been ingratiated into this state of mind to where we, you know, you look at Amazon, at least in America anyway, Amazon.com, like deliver stuff, you know, you get it next day. You can, it, it's all, everything is so so instant gratification it's insane and so our minds have kind of grown to think of well the world is that way and since i'm a part of the world then my life and who i am also should be that way or else i'm failing yes and people think like i need to be able to make these changes to and also like social media is so there, there's just this like cancerous growth of faux inf- inspirational quotes and like motivation <laughs> stuff flowing through the conduits of social media and the internet of just like you know i'm you know you'll be better tomorrow and all this stuff and it <laughs> creates all this weird pressure and like uh-huh. like spiritual fomo or something where it's like ah i'm trying you know like <laughs> these people are all look like they're accelerating at rapid pace and i'm still trying to like figure out how to sit properly when i meditate right. yeah and like it's all complete illusion it's all nonsense and if anyone like the the inner critic in all of us is so brutal and it's one of the things that people don't ever talk about it's like um you know, we all beat ourselves up constantly. We feel less than because we live in, you know, in the Western world anyway, in a society that is really built upon capitalism and marketing. And so the advertising, especially in America, is like, hey, you're, you would be better if you had this thing. And since you don't have it, it means that you're less than and therefore you're incomplete. So by existing, you're failing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's, the, that's what's ingrained in, in our DNA, you know? Right. And yeah. so um, anyway, the point is, is that you know, we shouldn't want that stuff. We shouldn't, if you like desire to be like, well, I'm going to work on this now and wake up tomorrow and be in like an enlightened, whatever. Not that I even think that's a real thing, but, um, then like, that's a good sign to know that you haven't done it right. That's yes. the sign to know that you haven't done it right. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a long thing, you know, it's a long gradual process. And that's what's so beautiful about it is because it's like pop. And I know we'll get to music later, but like, that's why I've always referred to. I've thought of pop music as like a bubble. It's called pop. Cause it pops. It gets really big. Like an artist gets really big, really quick pops and then disappears yes. a lot of times. Yeah. You know? And that's why it's like, you look at trajectories. It's like, you go real, what goes up really fast. It comes down really fast. We look at something like Radiohead, you know, they've got slowly, slowly, slowly <laughs> for 20, 30 years. And now they're, you know, they're obviously in the lexicon 
and your inner life is like that is the exact same way if you try to like wear the ornamentation or the self-identification of some kind of uh, you know, increase in awareness or depth of your inner life, it's going to pop like pop music. It's going to go up, then you're going to find the, the least bit of resistance that doesn't fit your preference, then you'll spiritual bypass, and then you'll probably be more deluded than you were to begin with. But if you just take this slow, gradual path, you're going to turn into Tom York, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, what a lovely segue into, into my next question, actually, which was more about the experience of listening. And I think this sense of urgency and immediacy that you talk about with reference to social media perhaps could be said in some senses to also exist within the experience of listening and the way in which we interact particularly with music nowadays uh i'm talking perhaps about spotify and streaming services which i think can be utilized in ways which feel very nourishing and productive but Mm -hmm. also there is the temptation to use it as basically an interface for purely immediate music experiences and being like, right, does this hit me right now? Does this serve me right now? And if not, there is literally billions of other songs I could be listening to. So there is no point being particularly patient with this. So that urgency, again, is is present and directing the experience. Is there a way that you, I mean, do you basically, do you feel this change in the way that you perhaps being encouraged to listen by these you know by streaming and if so is there a way that you protect deep listening or you know intentional listening within your life yeah i I think about this all the time i'm glad that you brought that up because um i used to be pretty resistant towards streaming services because i have well i came at it from this place of like looking at it as this form of respect for what has been created mm. you know and like i've pretty much always done deep listening all the time uh no matter what i'm listening to it's a a deep listening experience even if it's somewhat passive like if i'm driving the car listening to music like 50 percent of my brain is focused on the music right you yeah. know <laughs> and, like it truly is and, and then the other you know 20 percent's on the road and then who knows what the other percent's doing <laughs> um the other percent's like oh my god i'm driving a robot that's filled with liquid dinosaurs and, like, yeah. um, and so yes i mean deep deep listening has been such a huge part and it's really uh not only such a big part of my life but it's really the uh i think it's what made the life i have today possible truly um my just incredible respect and love for uh how rich a song can be or a piece of music can be gave me a level of awareness about music and a connection to the intimacy of music that allowed me to you know book, start my own music production company you know years ago mm. You can't be a mastering engineer without doing deep listening. I'm a professional deep <laughs> listener. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yes, I have so much respect for it. Um, I eventually started using the streaming services because I thought, well, you know, now this is interesting because time and space have all been smashed into one little nodule kind of switch bank where you can find, as you said, literally anything that's ever been created practically mm-hmm. within seconds. And that 
became really exciting. It's like, wow, I can just like blast through this kaleidoscope of, of music uh, all day long because I'm such a music addict, you know, and I love uh, uh, I just uh, have always been just had this kind of insatiable appetite for discovering new things just every day. I listen to at least one new record, but usually I listen to two or three new records a day or at least uh, artists or songs or whatever. Hmm. And so I begin using it as like uh, Spotify's and Apple Music's as like um, an ex- exploration tool. Yes. Um, so back in the day I worked in record stores and that was what I was doing is like every day I would go get a little stack of records and I just try new things and listen to them every day. And those came around by chance in a lot of ways. And, um, so that's kind of how I treat listening services these days is like, I do use Apple music, you know, in, in Spotify, because, uh, I like to go discover new things. Um, but if I'm like really true listening, you know, I definitely do deep listening in my studio. Uh, I think that ultimately leaning too hard in either direction, uh, it's not bad or good. You're just going to miss out on a lot of other potentials that way. Because if yes. you're only deep listening, then it's like, well, there's a lot of other cool stuff out there you could be finding and enjoying. And not all music has to be like a serious pursuit. I think that having a peripheral sort of like dip into something is is really cool too. Um, but then also if you go the other way where you're only hearing like one track from this art, you're listening to playlists all day, which is what a lot of people do. I think... I I don't know how could I know but I feel like most people just kind of skip around on playlists. Oh yeah. And to me I can't listen in that way. No. You know, I want like continuity and context and like I want to know about the artist's soul. I I don't want to just hear have like wallpaper scrolling by. Right. And so finding somewhere in the middle and, and using both of those things as tools I think is uh is important to me anyway. Yes, I could talk about this forever. Um, but we really should talk about your important records, Corey. Uh, the one question I like to ask is how you thought about the term important when you came up with this list of records. I mean, was there a way that you interpreted that word important when you were putting together the list of three important records that you did? Yeah, well, I love that in your in your communication, if I remember correctly, and maybe I just made this up, but uh, you said, like, whatever, the three important records, whatever that means to you. Yeah. And I really appreciated that because being, you know, a fellow audiophile and, a, you know, a fellow lover of music, you know what you're doing, you, Jack, you know, you know what you're doing, you ask someone like me or like yourself that question. That's an evil. That's a rude question to ask somebody <laughs> like one of us. You know? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's really rude. I was like, man, what are my three important records? <laughs> and so, whenever I whenever I sat down to think about it, I was like, okay, I could spend four months thinking about this. Yes, easily. And as you said, the 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 you know uh, kaleidoscope of like, what's that term mean? Well, then I could spend four months just thinking about, well, what does important mean? Like, how do I, do, how do, there's so many ways to define that. It's endless. And I know that's a part of kind of the prism of your question, which I really appreciate. And so I thought, all right, I'm going to not sweat this. I'm going to figure it out in five minutes. I'm just going to like think through it quickly. So I don't become consumed by this. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so that's honestly, I was like, I can't like, you know, I can't disappear from life for a few weeks. 
<laughs> like, no, everyone leave me alone. Can't clear my schedule. I got to think about the. So here's what I did. I thought about important as in like, uh, what were records that defined something for me in a term of uh, awareness or changed how I saw music moving forward from there like what what were three records that that connected with me at an important part in my life and really opened up uh either it connected a lot of parallels that are of part different aspects of my life that were all operating together or it was like this culminating moment of everything coming together and then everything kind of transforming after that beautiful what a great answer uh Corey, let's get stuck in. Whichever record Please. you want to pick first, go for it. Tell me the name of it and then a little bit about why it's important to you. Well, now I don't remember what I sent you. I'm just, <laughs> I just can joking. remind you. I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. All right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was my uh, cheeky little response to the important question. I do uh, get people saying that quite a lot. I have, I have no doubt. <laughs> um, do, you have any, do you ever get people that pick their own records? Not yet. No. Oh, thank, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, first record we'll go with uh, is Journey into Sashinanda by Alice Coltrane. Mm, awesome. So what about this album is makes it important to you? Uh, well, so I am a huge, huge Miles Davis fan, and I promise this will come around, uh, <laughs> swing back around to Alice Coltrane. And Bitches Brew was like the first Miles record I heard. And heard it when I was a teenager. I completely went into my crazy OCD uh, thing with it. I I have I listened to that record at least twice a day for several years. So wow. I've heard "Bitches Brew." I get you know about at least seven hundred times. You know, and I because I just had to get you know so it, it, that that record and i'm i'm trojan horsing a fourth one in a little bit right now and I, this was all <laughs> pre-planned done. this was pre-planned i have to admit <laughs> um and so i that one really just completely reconfigured the way i thought about jazz i thought about music i thought about everything mm. that led me into a deeper exploration of spiritual jazz which so Miles is bitches brew, and then of course I got on the corner and get up with it, and all those you know, all those great you know records of his from the seventies mm-hmm. and late sixties. That led me into spiritual jazz, and that was where I was like, oh wow, like Miles, you know that whole thing. That's its own thing, and it was amazing, and it really blew down this huge wall in my brain. But then when I reached Alice Coltrane's music and Pharrell Sanders' music, who's on Journey and Such and Under, I was like, okay, wow, this is the thing that I, this is like the destination I was trying to get to and miles like got me there. Um, so journey and such is really important to me because one, it is an incredibly beautiful record. It's so deep. It's so deep and it's so the pacing is so slow and patient and it really connects on this resonant level of the soul unlike almost any other record in my opinion um it's so tapped into source if you want to call it that or spirit or god or however you want to define it or the flying lasagna monster (laughs) um and you know it as i was talking earlier about it connected a lot of different parallel parts of my inner life which were which were um you know this uh connection with my you know 
I hate, I hate the word spiritual, but like my, my inner cosmic, you know, awareness, uh, type of life, my inward journey. And then also my deep love of jazz and music. And, uh, also the, I like in music, whenever there's a, a form that has other elements added to it that don't necessarily go together normally. And it's sort of like this, you get this revelation, this kind of, uh, uh, gestalt type of effect thing. So this record brought together so much stuff that I love. Like I loved Indian classical music. I love jazz and, uh, you know, particularly more on the free side. I was deep in my inner life at this point already. And so when I heard this record, I was like, wow, this is connecting like Indian classical music, which I, you know, as I said, I love so much with jazz, which I love so much with inner life business, which I love so much. And she's throwing 10 pros and, <laughs> and then she's like blasting the harp on there. And you got Fro Sanders, you know, working away on there and Rashid Ali, Charlie Hayden, all these incredible people. Yeah. And so it really just connected like all of these parts of my life all at once and uh yeah it, it's just it's a, got a real special place in my heart because of that and so you mentioned that you got here to jenny and sacha denanda from miles davis you traversed into spiritual jazz from miles davis how mm -hmm. did you embark on that traversal like if you i mean i don't know whether you knew this from the perspective of listening to miles davis but you're like right i, I want to see what else is going on here what are the means by which you kind of make those connections were you talking to friends to find out what records you should be listening to you know where you're looking online how, how did that how does that work yeah so the, essentially um this was probably in 2000 ish like around somewhere around there whenever i was uh discovering like a lot of the more you know far out free jazz type of stuff mm -hmm. and maybe a little bit before that and Honestly, I was working in one record store that was kind of okay, and I ended up working in a in a, a beautiful, legendary record store after that, fortunately, which was a whole other deep dive into music, you know. <laughs> um, but I was working in this one record store, and there was a guy, uh, this is totally random, but um, when I was about 18, 17, 18, this guy who's a blues musician from Austin named Omar. He has a band called Omar and the Howlers, and they're the uh, you know just a legendary Texas blues band. He would come in there for years, and we would always talk about music stuff. He's an incredibly sweet guy and really cool. Um, so I was playing some jazz record, something like you know Bitches Brew or something in there one day, or one of Miles's records, and. Yeah, he was like, oh, this is uh, great. And he's like, you ever uh, listen to Cecil Taylor before? And I was like, no, I don't know who that is. He's like, you should check that out. And I was like, all right. And I went and listened to that. And I was like, hello. You know, this is, <laughs> yeah. All right. And, uh, and at this point, I'd already, I'd been into Zanakis and Stockhausen and Ligeti and stuff like that. So I was into 20th century classical music already. And so then whenever I heard Cecil Taylor, I was like, oh, wow. He's like doing the same level of complexity as those composers but it's jazz and i was like this is interesting so that really then i after that he was like you ever you know listen to sun Ra?" and i was like oh let me check that out check that sun Ra, and i was like oh wow and he's another one that could easily go on this important record list you know mm. but he, I, I can't pick he's i'd have to pick him as a person i can't oh, pick God. one of his records yeah, you know for sure 
yeah yeah and that wasn't a part of the question now was it <laughs> no, but, um so yeah i uh, i basically from kind of talk he he kind of oh, you should check that out and then from there i did the classic you know pre-internet way of not that the internet wasn't around but just it was my mode at the time which is like looking to see who played on the record and then going to find their records and i'd see who played on their record and i'd go and find their records and i was a huge you know coltrane fan mm-hmm. um but then i was like oh wow his his wife makes music and now i'm kind of like that's so cool that alice's husband played this <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah oh man um i mean so when you think about these first experiences of listening to journey and Sachidananda, are there particular protruding memories of listening to this record like where are you what are you doing how is that experience for you oh yes um just that opening bass line yes. you know of Cecil McBee, you know, doom, but doom, boom. That that walking kind of baseline, even that is so, like, it anchors everything. That just sets the tone and the pacing for like this experience, this journey you're about to go on. Truly, it's literally a journey. You're really <laughs> going to go into a journey of Sacha Ananda. You're about to go on this musical journey. And I remember hearing that and being like, ooh, I'm like immediately I feel this in my my, my root chakras tingling. <laughs> uh, and then when that harp comes in, just swoops in, that just had me. That just blew my my mainframe. I was like, oh my God, I I'm I'm peaking right now already. <laughs> and um yeah, and then you know, you then of course, you know, whenever you know Pharaoh Sanders' work on there is like just this this uh very uh kind of vocal type of articulation that comes over i mean it just really that that first experience is like you're washed into another dimension and all of the i really love on that record the the hand percussion because she used kind of took a lot of you know from indian indian uh, devotional music a lot of just uh bells and tambourines that are sort of just almost like shamanic like paced sort of uh tempo type of things and then some more free just kind of busy i always pictured someone had those kind of tied to their wrist while they were doing other stuff right you know like in the studio and um yeah man it's that that first experience was so huge i was just living in my shitty little apartment you know whenever i was like 18 or whatever however old i was i remember listening to that and just really being washed over and then you know directly after that listening to that and uh during you know while on mushrooms and uh that really sealed the deal for me (laughs) (laughs) man Uh, i mean the the thing that really struck me when i heard this record so i uh, someone put this on a mixtape for me when I was at an old job. I kind of mentioned, I was like, I'm thinking of getting into jazz. And he was like, hold that thought. And then came in with two CDs of a load of stuff. And this is the one track that stuck with me. And I was like, I love this. And I didn't know what it was mm. or who it was until I discovered it on YouTube. Thank you, YouTube. Uh, about six years later. And then was like, oh, Christ, this is amazing. And then this year really dove into this record. And I think the thing that oh, nice really comes out at me about this album is just the sensation of being in that room and in that space and i am imagining like red velvet hangings i'm imagining a lot of nag champa i'm imagining just basically musicians almost touching each other because they're all so close together in that space um Mm. are there certain aspects of this sound uh the 
sensations that are generated on this record that you can pick out and say oh man you know that's the things i'm i'm really connecting with truly it's it's kind of everything that's what makes the record so cool is <laughs> yeah. it's like i said it's the the bass is this just rich and juicy foundation that's going it's like this this giant serpent like weaving through time then the articulation in the the harp isn't even about uh you know the, it's not about harmony or melody or anything it's a textual element and it's about the breath it's like to me it sounds like it's the wind moving around this giant baseline serpent that's going through there. Right. Then, then the, all of the percussion, that's like this kind of, this textural kind of granular element that I think is meant to hypnotize and entrance the listener, you know? So you, it's like the same, as I said, the same effect as like a shakapa that a shaman would use. Um, and yeah, so really, man, all of that, all the aspects, of course, the temporas, you know, do the same thing. And, uh, all those elements really, it all sticks me, you know, it all really gets me. Yeah. I mean, I was been listening to your album, The Source, which is... Oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> I was, thought you might bring that up. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, especially because I've lis been listening so heavily to Jenny and Sachet and Ander recently, your album almost has start to feel like some kind of anti-gravitational counterpart where someone's just turned the gravity off and the instruments are sort of floating in space in a bit more of a liberated way from like you know a song structure um, yeah can you tell me about the process of taking this could be a big question i'm kind of thinking it through as i'm going but could you tell me about the process of taking your love of alice coltrane and then putting it into a record like how do you do that in a way which pays homage but then doesn't render itself futile by just existing in the shadow of another work like how do you make mm -hmm. it its own thing do you know what i mean absolutely yeah and i i very much like to make no bones about like to myself even about what i'm trying to do on a record you know <laughs> Um, and so my, the, the records that I've released, you know, they all follow this, it's this narrative I've kind of come to realize of like what's happening on each one linearly. And the reason I haven't released a record in five years is because the source like got back to it, like it punctured through and got to where I was trying to go all that time for like the previous decade, mm. uh, from a conceptual standpoint. And Whenever I went to create it, I was like, I need to, as you said, kind of just honor my deep love for Alice Coltrane. And also, uh, I really wanted to find a way to use a lot of those musical elements uh, on tracks that uh, are kind of blending the styles of like what my music tends to generally sound like, but then also bringing in the elements from uh, Alice Coltrane and things like that that really are inspiring to me. And so... Whenever I, some of the musicians I had play on the record, I basically was like, okay, so just picture that we're making an Alice Coltrane record and then I'll take care of the rest. You know, just like, <laughs> that's really what I told them is like, just put your head there. And, and what's amazing, this will blow your mind, is like one of my dearest friends in the whole world is the guy that played drums on that record. Uh, his name's Lyman. And uh, he, he's a, he's from an older generation but he's the drummer for ed hall and like you know, i don't know if you remember that psychedelic band uh, rock band like they toured the flaming lips and butthole surfers back in the in the 90s wow and in the 80s yeah and so he's been he's a ground and pound you know four on the floor like rock brack beat type of drummer his entire life 
And I was like, you know, not only do I just love him and like we get musically on the, our minds are in the exact same wavelength, but I was like, Hey man, I'd love for you to play drums on this, but can you play like free jazz drums? <laughs> and he was like, I don't know. Let's find out. You know, I can try. And I was like, cool. So it was really cool to like, we had a lot of conversations about like what that meant. Mm. And then he got this like Indian flute record and he would listen to it on headphones and like try to play along with it. And I was like, hey, just like every time you hear like a uh, kind of an arrival point or some like shift or move or twist in the flute, hit any drum and just try and follow along <laughs> like with the like kind of the 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 conduit the movement of the flute happening and don't even think about the drums, just play that. And uh, he started doing that, and he found how to get off the grid and get into timelessness with the drumming. So the drums on there, the drummer, like, you know, it's amazing free jazz drumming on the source. He had never played jazz before. That is amazing. I think. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And having to, as well, verbally articulate how to approach even playing like that. And the way you went yeah. around it sounds incredible because well, the, it's such oh, a, sorry, go, go oh, I was just, it's such a it's a wordless process, right? And it's in practice. Totally, totally. I was just getting excited there. So the thing is, is that uh, I very much when I look for people to you know be, contribute to my records, I don't think about their chops and I don't care about their skill. I care about their soul. Mm. And so him. Like he's got the soul and beyond. He's got the soul of a thousand people. <laughs> I, we just had to get to like the technical part of it, and he figured it out, you know, really easily. So I like the spirit, you know. Like again, God, I'm using a lot of language. I don't like. I don't like any. Just as a <laughs> quick disclaimer, I don't like any of that, that language. I feel like it's too oopy goopy and loosey and easy to get wrong. But I mean, he's got the life force, man. You know, he's got yeah. the. I like that in people, and um, you can really feel that because my music's all about resonance. It's about like the the intent and the feeling that's coming through all resonating together outside of the realm of normal linear time musically harmonically uh in melodically all those things culminating in a vibration a frequency that feeds back with something deeper in the listener than just the sound itself and so to get that you got to have people that are tapped into that and if they you know maybe you don't have the cleanest takes whatever it doesn't matter like it's like it's not about you having you know glenn gould come he sounds like a typewriter you know like whenever he's playing <laughs> it's not about that it's about someone that's got that 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 depth and a little bit of spiritual swagger on him you know let's go to your second record uh if you like to give me the name of it and then a bit about why it's important as well yeah so this is a kind of a wild card uh i picked uh adam tm and it's uh leidget i think is how you say it it's german but basically that word means songs in german yes uh 
and so yeah that that one and i picked that record because it came out i think in like 2008 2009 mm-hmm. and i uh first oh um I'm going to interrupt myself just real briefly, if you don't mind. I meant to mention this earlier. It's kind of a cool aside, and it fits right into uh, Adam TM. So that record is on Raster Notan yes. Records, which is um, Karsten Nikolai and Olaf Bender's. Well, it was their 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 uh, label. Uh, Karsten was a mentor of mine like 10 years ago. Whoa. Yeah, and so um, we spent... Uh, a month living together <laughs> like, and just hanging out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No way. Whenever I was 27, I think, is whenever that 26, 27. So I learned a lot from Carson just about kind of the art world and stuff like that. But um, really cool thing. We were talking about music and this connects to the, the deep listening aspect of things. I really believe that no matter what it is, and I, I learned this in practice from being a mastering engineer, if you listen, no matter what the song is, you listen to it enough and you clear away what you, the idea that you're projecting on the thing that you're listening to. Mm-hmm. And it takes time sometimes to let that burn off or clear away. If you listen enough, soon enough, something will come through in that music that is really special and really different and really something that you you can learn from and you can, you can kind of embody. Totally. And... Um, Carson told me that back in the, in the days in Germany, because he's from Berlin, of course, and so pre-1989, before the Berlin Wall was down, he said that in the 80s that they had cassettes and that uh, basically records were really expensive because they couldn't get a lot of stuff over there. And so he said that he would get, like, they would offer, like, you can have basically whatever job he was working at the time, like, you can have two weeks holiday or you can have kind of two weeks pay and keep working and he said he'd always take his pay and he'd go buy another cassette or two but what him and his friends would do in berlin in the 80s would they would each have like a lot of people only had like 10 cassettes or something because they were so expensive or hard to get or whatever so they came up with a, a cassette trading group so you could have all your cassettes and it would go in a circle so you trade everything to the right and then you get everything from someone else and sometimes you didn't even know the people that well but you had this understanding of like and then so everyone gets to hold on to those cassettes or whatever for a few weeks and then you trade again and he's like i listened to the i had someone gave me purple rain by prince and uh at first i listened to it and i was like what the fuck is this like this is awful <laughs> and he's like by listen to it like 50 times and all of a sudden i was it just revealed itself to me where i was like oh my god this this is an amazing record you know and so point is is that with the streaming stuff you have this flow this river of of stuff just coming through you can never you can't get to the thing that's below the surface with music by only listening that way and because of that it is important no matter what your life situation is to dedicate some time to deep repetitive listening uh, to certain records well said um yeah I, I mean certainly the fact that spotify playlists are titled often by their status as an accessory so music yeah. for the ironing sunday yes. morning yes. brunch <laughs> you know uh, and that's the idea and you talk about implanting an idea on this music it's then granted a purpose uh, you know i, I totally. talk about sometimes like central heating it basically you turn it on when you want it on and then when you're satisfied that it's done a job you switch it off um yep 
and uh, you know it, it's called a service literally so what a wonderful idea though that cassette trading circle yeah. I mean, when do you get an opportunity to approach something with absolutely no idea what you're going to get when you press play that's fantastic and also imagine being handed purple rain like from it's like an album from another country like out of time you know he has no idea about american culture there's actually another story i, I can't repeat uh <laughs> while we're recording but it's equally fun and relates to something similar it's a story that olaf told me uh so anyway all right back to adam tm so i had the deep deep love for electronic music uh most of my life uh, I like, you know, ambient music, the more, you know, experimental stuff, all that, you know, even, um, you know, like Warp Records type of stuff before Brain Feeder was around or any of that type of business. Uh, very big into Autecra and, yeah. you know, that type of stuff in the 90s um, in two, early 2000s. So, uh, was with uh, Karsten, uh, then kind of got connected and then uh, figured out about Adam TM. And I was still, I was sort of like, feeling i was feeling at the time whenever that record right before it came out that like maybe electronic music like in the more experimental vein was kind of done i really felt like it the genre was tired i was so saturated with it um i felt like everything had become um really you know, self-referential or derivative or it was just the 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 story of music in electronic music at that time was getting wider, not deeper. Right. And I was getting just, I was kind of like, ah, you know, and, and Carson had put out Xerox one, I think, which was amazing. Mm, yeah. But still I, I was like, this is great. This is really great. Um, but it's still kind of like, it wasn't, uh, you know, I still kind of felt this feeling about that. And then whenever Adam TM put out, the light gut record it really just reinvigorated my love for what was possible with electronic music because he was like hey check this out here is this album completely out of nowhere you've never heard anything like this in your entire life and it also it references the past the present and the future <laughs> germany the history of german music the future of german music and the technical aspect like the most highbrow technical aspect of music of electronic music and the silliest aspect yes, of music absolutely and he did it he does that all at once so it's like all right we're gonna start this album off with white noise and then we'll go to like fm synthesis for a few minutes we are like <laughs> uh right and then he goes into like let's take this german songbook classic you know compositional piece do it in synthesizers and it's like this serious it, your potential for it's a very serious composition you know, technically and you know production wise and his adaptation of these pieces or how he's written his own pieces and then it's like and then we'll have some silly little like wonky warbly like muppety sounds <laughs> on some of the synthesizers then he does the vocoding vocals which is refer of course referencing a bit of german history and craft work and things like that yeah Th then he has i think florian from craft work on the last track doing the vocoded vocals so he's really like gone <sighs> right. yeah like here's everything and then here's like what's possible because he you know invents some new techniques and some new styles and like here's what's possible and it really just like not only is it an incredible record and it just uh is pretty inexhaustible it was innovative and it just was like a fresh breath of uh what was possible in the genre to me and did you like it straight away i did yeah yeah i honestly i would skip those fm synthesis tracks at first 
and then go to the the more the ones with the vocals or kind of the more weird kind of uh wal- waltzes the german waltzes <laughs> on there and then uh, actually i was i met him later because i went to uh mutech a few years after that to hang out with carson olaf and um he was he performed you know the light gut album there which was awesome to see it live and wow. afterwards i was trying to you know talk to him and i couldn't come up i was trying to articulate kind of like how awesome i thought the record was and i was like i can't really you know such a good record and i was like it's just tasty man (laughs) and he was he started cracking up and he's like tasty i think that's like my favorite way i've heard my music referred to before (laughs) but yeah it's just a tasty record yeah it's a tasty record so i've heard two records of his previously one is vinterizer and the other being hd uh Mm. and this felt like to me an assimilation of the energies on both of those records in the sense that winterizer is utterly beautiful and beautifully crafted Mm -hmm. all of his stuff Mm -hmm. is obviously hd is completely silly and you know it's basically like a parody record it's really wonderful as well this was great i'd not heard another record by him but this felt like it was like a fluid um vacillation between what he's capable of um yeah just great love it it's really fantastic um have you heard senior coconut so i was going to ask you about that oh right Um, yeah so i haven't but i keep seeing it mentioned in reference to his stuff and um i haven't yet checked it out but should i be doing that you should it's so preposterous it's the best (laughs) it's like but it's also awesome it's like imagine He's one of those rare people that can do... It's like Yorgos Lagomos, the director that did like The Lobster and The Favor uh-huh. and stuff like that. Yeah. It's one of these impossible qualities where someone can make something so artful and high level on an intellectual level while simultaneously being completely silly and preposterous. Right. It's really weird. So Senior Coconut is like a bunch of kind of lounge, like kind of a, a bossa nova sort of Cuban lounge music done with synthesizers. Wow. So, yeah, it's it's worthy of your time. <laughs> um, and hearing, Le- I think it's pronounced Liedgut, with my German GCSEs uh, tell me correctly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, so when you saw it perform live, I mean, so how was that? Was it kind of basically a, a, a true to the record in terms of its chronology? Was it, you know, expanded or uh, how was that experience? Yeah, he, there, I, I recall it's a little hazy. I've had a lot of bourbon since then. It was a good, <laughs> you know, 10, 10 plus years ago. But uh, yeah, it was really great. He had a great visual element happening. It was like a DOS screen with like with green text like printing out some code kind of going along with what his computer was doing. So it was this hilariously stripped down, minimal, like very German computer based type of, but then it would have like, I just remember this now. So he's having all these wonderful moments, kind of riffing on some of those uh, tracks that are on the album. And then during a really big, serious climax, like musical climax where you're like, Oh shit, this is getting (laughs) deep. And like, he's about to, you know, uh, really were peaking now for the set, not just for a song, but the entire set was peaking. Then through that, like that green DOS screen of text fades out in a picture, like as the music swelling and like white noise, a big whoosh is coming in and pressure's building in the sound. Like this picture fades in on the screen in the back and it's him, uh, 
wearing a bathing suit laying on a lawn chair <laughs> sipping like a coconut martini with sunglasses on and it's like dude that is like it's my favorite it's like tim and eric or something it's like it's my favorite non-comedy anti-comedy comedy type of thing it's amazing especially because i think he's affiliated with rasta no tom which i love that label and it's been so instrumental me for me and my music tastes particularly as a late teenager but does have a reputation i think for the large part for quite serious and very precise music yeah. almost surgically so um are there mm-hmm. other artists on that label that you connect with yeah i, I mean olaf is is amazing by tone yeah. his stuff is great um i like the the s and d record is really cool like the collaborative record between a lot of the like i think frank Schneider and karsten and olaf were on that one nice um and that it's a little bit hazy uh i remember enjoying i think william basinski had a record out on there that uh-huh. was nice i i really liked i got this um this i, I heard about rastnoton i got into them randomly because I, I really like austere you know german electronic music and uh way way back this is guy had to be early 2000s when i was in the record store uh someone brought in some cds to sell and they had this funky little like i just randomly saw it It as this funky little like compilation of four cds it was like remember i think when they do those three cds but then they have five inches worth of plastic on them so you can still play them in a so it was like four of those in independent little sleeves in a bigger thing but there was a hole that went through the middle of it and through all of the the uh cds itself i was like what the fuck is this (laughs) and so i go i look at it i'm checking out i'm like this is weird this is interesting i listen to it and it's just like you know vibrating sign tones or whatever and I was like, oh, man, this is cool. And I remember, that's sort of how I happened upon him. And then I remember in Wire, then I saw an interview with either Carson or Olaf talking about Rastronoton. I was like, oh, okay. And I became, likewise, just totally obsessed with that label for a good five years or so. Yeah, it's fabulous. Um, wicked. I mean, is there a track on this album that you could consider to be a favorite or a standout? On the lead get record? Yes, yeah. Oh man, I there's the little um I I can't remember the name of it, but there's like th- several tracks that um have like three kind of part 1, 2 and 3. Yep. And there's one of those series. I'm going to try and look at it real quick and I think the just allow me to just butcher this. The <laughs> Mitteur compositions, Mitteur composition number 1, 2 and 3. Uh-huh. I think those are really exciting in the wyvis rush on those those ones are really good uh i think those are the ones i get really excited about the ones that have a lot of the complex uh kind of rolling arpeggiated uh synth things with vocoder happening on top of them are uh, are where i generally go towards in that record nice those are pagated sensors so beautifully shaped on this record oh, yes it's unbelievable um he's a real he's a real master you know like a lot yeah. of people mess with synths like a lot of people and few hardly any are true masters in my opinion he's one of them
I'm aware, in fact, it's been an hour since we've been talking. Are you good for time to talk about this this last record? I, I have to talk about Donuts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'd be cruel to cut it off here. Great. Okay. Awesome. So your final important record, Corey, uh, tell me what it is and a little bit about why it's important. Yes. Uh, J. Dilla Donuts. And that um, is important because... Huge fan of hip-hop my entire life. It was one of the first musical forms that I really got into as like a you know 12-year-old or whatever. <laughs> um, just really, really deep love for that in the way it connects to uh, American culture, the way it really has dictated, has turned out to dictate uh, an architect American culture. Uh, and then I just love hip-hop in general and so being just a, a rabid fan of hip-hop my entire life a deep initiate of it um again like it was in in whenever donuts was about to come out there was it was an interesting time in hip-hop because obviously the 90s the mid 90s was the golden era after that in the late 90s it was sort of like all right what's happening then 2000 came around and it was like oh boy where where are we at here <laughs> and then like ghostface put out i think that was whenever <laughs> ghostface put out um uh maybe uh god which what record is it i, I can't remember the, the one but i think it's him with the microphone supreme clientele maybe i think that's the one that came out uh-huh and it was like that was like a new page turning in hip-hop and everyone's like all right <laughs> We're back. <laughs> Something's going right here because it was you know it was fighting with with uh, corporatization and like pop you know uh, absorption so heavily at that time. It was the first wave, and then that's you know right around that time a lot of underground things started happening in hip hop, which was really cool. Like uh, just a lot of artists are doing it you know more in at home, and there's kind of this bubbling sort of new generation arising in the two thousands, but it, you know. There was a lot of interesting stuff, but it was still kind of just going along, I think, doing its thing. Then, you know, Stone's Throw came around, and they were a fresh take. They're kind of like, they're sort of like uh, um, this new portal opening up into the genre, really doing this no-coast type of, like, uh, I don't know, just this, this whole new take on it, and... I think it was an, an important record. Is also I'm kind of Trojan horsing another one in. Is that you know Madlib and and uh, MF Doom did the Mad Villain record, hugely important, hugely important. Uh, and so that was a, a big moment in hip hop where it took kind of what was bubbling in the underground and really crystallized it. And it was like, hey, check this out. You can do make this weird library record, and then still have it be really successful and like right. <laughs> we did this lo-fi like weird library record and it's like crushing and people love it you know yeah so that was a really important moment and then after that whenever dilla put out donuts it was like i think mad villain was kind of like prepare yourselves look what's possible <laughs> and then donuts was like all right here is <clears throat> somewhat like uh uh, the in some way the reason I like the Adam TM record a little bit is because Donuts was like all right check this out so here is the history of hip hop encapsulated in a record 
here's the future of what's possible in a lot of ways encapsulated in a record here's the highest art of any hip-hop record that's ever been made possible like the highest achievable art the range and dynamic of what you can do with music in general much less hip-hop or blending different genres to create the form of hip-hop here's all of that woven together and it's actually the first hip-hop sound design record (laughs) at the same time so it's like and also we're going to shake off all of the structure uh the the predisposition to structures that people think you must have in in hip-hop is like you have to have you know eight bars eight bars eight bars chorus whatever and like you know one mc two mcs here this this whole thing is like check it out uh no MCs, and each song is like 30 seconds long. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember that came out when I was working in a record store, and I remember like uh, after we would close and like, you know be kind of cleaning stuff up or whatever and putting stuff away, we would always put on the new releases that were going to come out the next day because we had to like stock those so they'd be ready for the you know customers next day. So we'd always like listen to the new releases the night before. And I remember that... Uh, yeah, we you know some a few of us knew who Jay Dilla was just because of his production with like Tribe and stuff like that. And we're like, oh, let's, man, he's put this record called Donuts. We're like, what? <laughs> and so we we put it on. I remember like half of us, like myself included, were like, oh my god, this is like, this is like a Luke Ferrari made a hip hop record or something. This <laughs> nice. is like, this is crazy. And and then half the other people were like, "This is annoying. I hate this. It's like he's like turning a radio dial. He has like ADD." Right. And I'm like, "Ah, you just don't like be patient. You'll it'll, you'll get it." <laughs> um, but anyway, it's like it's just man, it, it's really a true work of art, and the complexity and the the intricacy and the care and the the wisdom as a composer and as a music producer and how music works on a technical level, how it connects to people, like the way that he connected. All of the, you know, they have like a Zappa sample next to a 10cc sample next to, it's like, you know, the Mizell brothers underneath. It's like, that's not supposed to be possible. Right. But, you know what I mean? <laughs> but he made it like, like a friend of mine and I, a dear friend of mine, will listen to stuff like that. And, you know, we've listened to Donuts together in a deep listening session. And we're like, you can't do that. You know, like, you're not allowed <laughs> to do that. But he did it. He did it over and over again. Yeah. Wow. And he, so I read about it as well. So this is the first time I'd ever listened to this record. Uh, right, whenever, before we did this? Yeah, yeah. As in you oh, saying wow, to me, wow. listen to this record. Like, I, I okay. do not come from background of listening to hip hop at all. And I've started to make steps into hip hop over the last, like, four or five years i'd never heard donuts ever i'd heard you mention it on your podcast and i had the most wonderful time discovering this album uh just fabulous and I, to me it feels like an incredibly like prescient record with regards to a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about when it comes to spotify basically the world of distraction in which we live and that you have this hyperactive flitting between different pieces of music i just thought it was absolutely wonderful um so one thing i did do as well is a bit of digging about the record so i understand so he passed away three days after this came out is that right yeah 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 so he was suffering from i think he had uh like lupus or something like that i i don't remember yeah um 
but he basically had like a blood disease of some sort, I believe, and was just kind of slowly dying. And they're trying to help him, uh, but he was kind of just slowly, uh, his health was failing and he was working on donuts. And I think, honestly, I kind of feel like that might be why, and, and there's a lot of, there's, or, or not a lot, there's some beautiful interviews with Mad Lib where he's talking about this a little bit, but, uh, you know, Jay Dillon knew he was going to go. And so, I feel like some of the AD, what one might perceive as ADD-ness on there is him being like, I got to get in my ideas. This is my last right. my last record. I got to blast it out and do as much as I can because this is my last thing. And um, there are stories about his mom. Like he made a lot of the record in the hospital. Yes. Yeah. So he's like in the the hospital bed with like a little mini mpc and a laptop or whatever and his mom would like stop they would take breaks to like she would rub his hands like in between because they hurt and they like his bones hurt and stuff so she would like rub his hands during him working on the record and it's like it's just really what a incredible thing that for him to be able to to put that feeling and that gravity of his existential awareness into a record and the important thing maybe the hardest thing of all is that what he put from where he was in his life into the record he put in the love aspect of it right he didn't put in the bitterness he didn't put in the the sadness he didn't put in anything that was self-centered or self-focused in the sense of like, I'm mad that I'm not going to be around. I resent that I'm dying young. No, he put in, it was a celebration of life, of the people he loved, of the music he loved. And it's really, it's a, uh, it really is, in my opinion, it's, um, it's a real testament to him as an artist and to what's possible, like in the human spirit. Amazing. Um, And I read as well, I don't know, you can correct me if this is incorrect, but either his mum or someone close to him would bring him like a crate full of records to the hospital. And so he would then rifle through and then yeah. send back most and say, these are no good. These are the ones that I want to work with. And so you've got this yeah. like frenetic audio experience, which feels like sometimes it feels like it's being put together while someone's on a travel later uh, and, and, you know, just constantly <laughs> moving. And yet... Uh-huh there's the knowledge that there is utter precision and like a a, a real hardy curation going into like every moment of that record and again the sense that something that is so fleeting and lasts for 30 seconds and i guess could conjure associations of being almost like slapdash or just here and then gone is just Mm -hmm. a a work of just craft you know scalpel craft it's amazing Truly, and if you look at what that did, that record did to underground hip hop music. After that, everything changed. Right, everyone realized like, oh, you can do that. Like, you're allowed to do that, <laughs> and it really shifted everything. And I think that um, another beautiful part of Dilla was like, and this is great when it happens. You know, whenever an artist can get to a place mentally where they can do the thing, where you know everyone's worried about no matter kind of what level you're at. You want to make what you want to make, but you also want to make something that you know is going to um, be 
heard properly you know like you you, you could make something like i i could sit around and listen to sign tones and you know my refrigerator engine running or whatever all day like that sounds good to me <laughs> but i know that no one wants to listen to that you know right and i understand that like it's, i'm realistic about that and so when i go to create music i like to make things that are musical in some degree and things that i enjoy that come out of me naturally that i know people will also enjoy um but uh and it's a choice that's a choice you know uh but i feel like when an artist can get to a place where they literally go what anyone else says i'm supposed to do or if anyone hears this or whatever i don't care i'm going all in and doing exactly everything that like like i'm allowing the fullness of what comes through in my artistry to just spill out and i'm not worried about any of that other stuff right and i feel like he was able to do that because the stakes were so low you know he's like yeah this is my i can literally i'm not gonna get my career is already done you know like i can do whatever i'm free i'm free and to hear that type of freedom in music is a real it's rare it's it's a real joy it's something special and i think it's very apparent on donuts yeah i saw um i think it was jeff Parker from Tortoise has a big piece where loads of people were talking about the impact and he was like I still listen to it and it's still revealing itself to me is that the experience mm. that you have as well as there's still new details and new experiences that you're deriving from this record with Donuts oh yeah I mean it's one of those it's like you can listen to it I've, I've listened to Donuts hundreds of times as well front to back and uh, yeah you can definitely continue to just hear new things and even if you even if you hear new, it's, say you're familiar with all the samples and the transitions and you know every every bit of movement and everything that's happening in the record, which you know I've got that every atom of that record memorized. Ah, I should have said that about Adam TM. I've got every <laughs> atom of this record memorized. I've got every sprinkle on this donut memorized. <laughs> Lovely, but still I can go back and listen to it and and still go like, oh wow, now I feel like my my perspective on why what's happening in the song is more mature. This has been fabulous. Thank you very much indeed for talking through your three important records and also your book, Now It's The Way, as well. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. This is really, really fun. I wish uh, all podcasts were this fun. <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> if people want to uh, check out your work, I mean, as you, we've talked about, you're a musician, you're an audio engineer, you're an author, you do a fantastic podcast as well. If people want a one-stop shop where all of that is accessible, where should they go, Corey? I think just slide on over to corey-allen.com. 
all the music's there, the podcast is there, the book's there. Also, a huge element that we did not touch on is my uh, how I was against my will. Uh, it was decided that I'm a world-renowned binaural beat creator. <laughs> uh, yes, so of course. That's another thing. Those are over there as well if you like those type of things. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, Corey-Allen.com. Brilliant. Great. Well, thanks once again. And to everyone listening, I will see you next time. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.